0: We are living in a day where an increasing number of people come from dysfunctional families. The numbers of those from homes affected by divorce, alcohol, and drugs are devastatingly high. Awareness of abuse, if not the actual incidents themselves, have risen drastically. And family isn't a very user-friendly term to many. I don't know this morning what emotional resonance you have with the idea of family, but I do have some good news for you. Because the concept of family in God's eyes and in His plan is absolutely amazing. It is wonderful. It is spectacular. It is thrilling. You see, as believers in Christ, we are kids of the King. We are members of God's family. And one of the greatest truths, if you have believed in Christ, if you've trusted in Him for your salvation, is that you have been adopted into God's family. You are a part of His family. The Apostle John, writing in his Gospel, says this, But to all who received Him, speaking of Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this idea of God's child is how John opens up chapter 3 in his first letter that's in the New Testament. Now, before we dive into the text and look at that this morning, let me tell you what I want you to walk away with today. Okay, so this is what you need to remember. There are two things about your family connection with God. It's what God declares, and it's what we demonstrate. What God declares, and what we demonstrate. It begins where we must begin, and that is what God says is true of those who have trusted in Christ. And from that foundation, then, it is is a matter of what our lives demonstrate in light of what He's declared. So in other words, being a child of God will result in a life that is marked by certain things, indicating the relationship that we have with God. So this is where we begin. Let's go to the book of 1 John. If you've got your own Bible or tablet or whether 1 John chapter 3, or if you want to pull a seat back, Bible, page 1303. In 1 John chapter 3. Notice what he says as we started verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So God declares that we are his child. Draws this question out, well, what is it? What's the motivating force behind this declaration? Well, it's the love of God. And that's a theme that's consistent all through the Scriptures. Let me just give you some examples by way of illustration. From Psalm 59, the psalmist says, But I will sing of your strength, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. In Psalm 108, verses 3 and 4, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. We jump to the New Testament. Paul, writing in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. One of the greatest truths is God doesn't ask us to clean up our act, to somehow do something to earn His love, but God shows His love while we're still sinners. We go on to the end of chapter 8 in Romans, and Paul writes, for I'm I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you need to leave this morning with one thing ringing in your ears. God loves me. God loves me. You may feel you are unlovable. You may not have experienced what you think should be love in much of your life. You may have a wrong view of God because you've transferred your views of an earthly father up to your heavenly father, which is a terrible mistake. But know this for sure. God loves you. He loves you so much, and that's what we celebrated in communion. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. There's nothing more that he can do to demonstrate how much he loves you. Let's try something, okay? A little participation, okay? Here's what I want you to repeat after me. God loves me. Would you say that? God loves me. You believe it? You got to believe it, because it's what God declares to be true. Again, whether you feel it or not, whether you feel like it or not, God declares He loves you. I, ha- I have to take an R squared T here. If you don't know what that is, it's a relevant rabbit trail. Because uh, there's something that I want to I want to just read to you. You listen. It's over in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter one, and Paul is praying. There for the Ephesians, and by application, he's praying for us today. And listen to what he says For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened. So you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Now listen, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is saying that God is rich because you are his child. I don't understand that. I can't fathom that. But God is rich because he's inherited you. He brings you into his family. He loves you with an everlasting love. And in some way, God is made rich because you are his child. What amazing statements John opens this 1 John 3 with about our status before and with God. See what kind of love, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. So here's the thing, folks. Will you take God at his word? Will you believe what he said about you? Will you believe the truth he declares about you? God loves you. Now John follows on by sharing what the outcome will be based on the fact that we're God's child. Look at verse 2 again. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. God, if I understand the scriptures right, God has already predetermined that you are going to be conformed to the image of his son. You in the future, one day, will be just like Jesus. That's what Paul declares. In Romans chapter 8, when he wrote, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is going to be the end result of every person who is a child of God. It's going to happen. And God has declared it to be so. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says that when Christ returns, every believer will receive a new body, a body in the likeness of Jesus' resurrected body. And we will see Him as He is, and we will be like Him. What an amazing thought. And so John adds that having this hope, this confidence in God keeping His promise, believing what God has declared, then we choose to align our lives to how He wants us to live. We set our will to His, and and we bring an obedient heart then into our life before Him. Now, in the remainder of the passage, John outlines then the marks of a child of God. How should we be able to identify a person as a true child of faith? That's the question that John seeks to answer here. How do we demonstrate that we belong to Christ? There seems to be three things that he says in this passage then. Number one is that there's a growing conviction to order one's life toward righteousness. Let's look at the text, starting at verse 3, down through verse 10. John says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I I think John is illustrating what Jesus talked about when he spoke to the Pharisees and he said this, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. We can't judge the, the, the heart. We, 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 the motive we can't judge because we don't see inside of a person. But John says that we should judge the fruit of someone's life. We should judge the outward thing that we can observe about that. Uh, and we should be able to tell either by the fruit or lack of fruit what their relationship with God is. Now, just a cursory reading of that and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm lost because I still sin." What is John? I don't think that's what John is saying there. John, I think, is is talking specifically about a person who habitually practices sin. That is, if sin is the characteristic of their life with no conviction, no remorse, then one could conclude that that person has not been born of God. Again, it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean that there isn't failure in our lives. It doesn't mean that there's not sin in our lives. And and particularly if you're a newer believer in Christ, you know, don't go comparing yourself with someone that's walked with the Lord for 30, 40 years and and get discouraged. Here's the important question. In what direction are you moving? Is there more and more in your life a growing knowledge of Christ and how He wants you to live and and a growing sense that this this is the direction I want to go in? So what John says is, listen, if there's a person out there, and he's talking certainly about what he'd seen in churches around, but he said if there's a person in there who's just living in sin, has no place for God, then one could rightly question where that relationship is. On the other side, you're growing in faith, and you're wanting to do what's right, and and you're seeking to, to live out God's will in your life. That's a mark of a person that's been born into the family. So again, he's warning against the person who seems to have no interest in Christ, no inclination toward righteousness at all. And that person, John says, is deluding themselves, deceiving themselves, or they're just living a lie. Here's a second mark that John gives us. There's a growing commitment to love others just as Christ has loved us. Look in the text at verse 11. John says, For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, That we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And the John here, love for others, is evidence that we are growing and that we've experienced the love of God in Christ. The Christian ethic, you see, can be summed up in just one word, love. That's what Jesus was talking about with the young lawyer who had come and asked him a question to test him. And the question is, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? He was hoping now Jesus would give an answer and then he could set people against each other because of what Jesus said. But Jesus replied and in, recorded in Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And John says that the fact that we would love others is proof that we have passed from death into life. The idea of these two terms that he uses, life and death, it refers to eternal destination. You see, the the Bible is clear that everyone lives in an eternal state of life or an eternal state of death. And physical death just ushers a person into the experiential reality of what realm that they are living in. We are an aroma for Christ, Paul says, to the unbelieving world, to the believing world, uh, and loving others, John says, is proof that we belong to Christ, that we've been born into God's family. Now remember, this is the fruit of salvation. It's not the root of salvation. It's what comes as a result of what God has declared to be true. And then we demonstrate it as we live it out in our lives. Do you notice John goes a step further? And he says that to hate is to be a murderer. Murderer. I suspect he's thinking back to the Sermon on the Mount where he heard Jesus speaking these words. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And what Jesus was trying to say is that the attitude of your heart is important here. It's as important as the outward act. And he's basically saying, listen, for you and your heart to have a, a settled uh, disputation of, of anger and spiteful wrath against somebody else is the same as, to be, same as being a murderer. Obviously, the consequences aren't the same, but the reality of it and the harshness in judgment is Now, I suspect at this point, John anticipates a question from his his readers. Okay, I see this obligation to love, but what does it involve? What does it mean? And so John explains and then illustrates what he's trying to say. Verse 16 again, by this you know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The Christian life is the imitation of Christ. It is to do what Jesus did. The Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Philippians, and he describes what this selflessness looks like in real practical terms. And so he writes this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, and these are in the original language of the New Testament conditionals of if and is true. So he's saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, then there is, any comfort from love, and there is, Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy in there is, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And John thinking how can I illustrate this to the people in his day goes on to say this, that if anyone sees, has the world's good and sees his brother in need but closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. Now the world's a lot different today than it was in John's day. So how would we apply that? I think the key is to be sensitive to the needs of others. Maybe it is a physical need or a, or, or a financial need, but you know, in many other cases, it's just the need for a word of encouragement. Being sensitive to God as to what the needs of those around me are. I think we recognize that we cannot meet every need, nor are we called to meet every need. But we are we willing to help as God moves us to help, and as he's given us the resources to help, that's the question that God wants to know. Are you willing? Are you willing? I think we need to set appropriate boundaries. You need to be aware of guilt, whether it's self-induced or others-induced in this whole thing. And I think we need to watch for a very subtle danger here because you can do the right thing for the wrong reason. You might do something if you're not careful to earn points with God. That you're seeking to obtain His favor by what you do rather than because God loves you and because of His favor. Here's another discerning indicator of love is, do I seek to meet that need because of Christ's love and as a demonstration of His love? Or do I do it because I want something in return? Respect. Affirmation applause, reward, recognition. But it really checks out our motive, doesn't it? For why we then do things, why we help. And that leads to a third indication or mark that someone truly knows God, has been born into the family. And that is that there's a growing confidence in what God has declared and what I demonstrate. Let me read on in the text of 1 John 3, starting at verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth, And reassure our heart before Him, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. John's talking about a discernment that comes in the heart. Am I acting and am I responding appropriately towards others? Uh, Does my heart assure me that I'm acting in the way that Christ would want me to act? So first we see, even John says, God is able to overcome even our failures. God is greater. He is more powerful. He is more gracious. He is more forgiving than we can even imagine. And he's faithful to all his promises that he makes to us. So that even when we sin, he forgives. Even when we fall, he picks us up. Even when we fail, he restores. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. What a gracious and compassionate father we have. What a wonderful and amazing salvation. And what a tremendous truth that we are called the children of God. And so we are. What God has declared, what we demonstrate. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word today. Help us to take your word and apply it in the world in which we're living. It's certainly a little different than John's world. But Lord, we we know that you've called us to love others, to act toward others in a loving way. And Lord, would you just make us this week sensitive to the needs of others, to people that just might need a word of encouragement, that need someone to come alongside of them and say, hang in there. And Lord, if it's someone that there's a physical need, a material need that we can meet, would you also then clearly direct us that way? We thank you for this wonderful truth that we're your children. And Lord, we know we don't deserve it, but sometimes we just condemn ourselves when you have not condemned us and you've welcomed us in your family. May that be more and more true in our experience that we would know and we would enjoy being your kids. And thank you for that in Christ's name, amen.